0: As we come to the scripture, let me ask you, please, to turn to First John and chapter three. 1 John chapter three, please. I want to read uh, verses one through ten. First John chapter three, verses one through ten. And again, as you found out, let's pray, Father, here we now at your word, and so we pray that you would bring it to light, that you would shed light on this passage and speak to us through it, that you work through the Apostle John, Holy Spirit, to breathe out exactly what you want us to hear this morning, to breathe out that which is true, the very word of God for all time. So please help us to see it to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. First John chapter 3, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, if we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is a great passage, period. But it's a great passage for Advent. Uh, It comes to us by way of God's providence, not by any way of planning. But you can see that as we think about Advent, we think about the arrivals, the appearings of Jesus, we have it all in this passage uh, in chapter 3, verse 2. And Ryan Randolph took this up last Sunday. It's the second coming, the second advent of Jesus when he appears. But then in the verses that follow, we have uh, two references to his first advent. Notice in verse 5, it says, you know that he appeared, past tense, he appeared first advent. And then the reason, verse, uh, in, this is in verse 8, uh, the reason the Son of God appeared first advent. Now, no, John doesn't have any great intention of uh, providing this text as an Advent passage. That wasn't in his mind. He uses the advents of Jesus, the arrivals of Jesus, to make a point. That is, this is the, the foundation of his argument, if you will. And he's making a point, clearly, if you were listening as I read it, that we're to live holy lives. That is, we're to live lives Separated out, that's what the word holy means, to be separate, to be separated out, to live holy lives separated out by God for God, right? That's John's point here, and he's making it by saying, uh, Jesus has come and Jesus is coming again. Now, the, the reason that John is laying this out, you know this, we've talked about this, I always like to mention this just so we keep context in our heads when we take up a passage. Uh, that John is writing because there are those who have left the church who were heretics, if you will. They didn't believe that which is true about, about Jesus. So they left. So John writes to the church that remains, and he says, I want you to know how you can know that you really do have eternal life. And so he lays out these markers. They're, three of them that we can identify pretty easily. Uh, one marker is, he says, if you really belong to, to God through Jesus, if you really have eternal life, then you'll love each other. You'll love each other as Christ has loved you. He, he laid this out in, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. He'll pick it up again. We can see at the end of this verse 10, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he'll come back to this. And then he also said that we need to believe that which is right, that which is true about about Jesus, we must believe that he's the son of God, that he's God come in the flesh. We must believe that which is true about, about Jesus. He, he spoke of that in chapter two, beginning in verse 18. He'll pick that up again in chapter four. But this marker, how it is that we know that we really have eternal life, that we really belong to the Lord, is this marker of obedience, obedience. He, he, he introduced this in chapter 2 and verse 3. Notice, he says, And by this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus, in which he walked. And that's clearly his point here. If we belong to the Lord, if we have eternal life, notice how he puts it. I I hope, I know you were listening, but I hope it startled you. Verse six, for instance. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Verse 10. By this we it is evident who are the children of God and are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, if you're like me and, and you read those passages, there's various passages that I call call my Yabat passages. I read them and I say, yeah, but and we read this and we want to say, yeah, but but Clearly, John isn't saying we'll never sin again, right? I mean, clearly, John is saying that that when you become a Christian, that that doesn't at all mean that you become sinless at that point, that, that you never again sin. We'll see your yabbit in a minute. Before we get there, let the weight of this press in upon you. John's very serious. The Holy Spirit is very serious about how we live as believers in in Jesus. You might remember in Matthew in chapter 5, in verse 48, how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount puts it. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's another yeah, passage, right? We go, yeah, but but we have the righteousness of Christ, right? yes. Romans chapter 12, in verse 1. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We say, yeah, but if I present myself in Christ, right? Yes. Then first... Thessalonians, and chapter four, and verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And that word sanctification comes from the word holy. Um, really, if we wanted to make up an English word that doesn't sound clearly as 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 wonderfully nice as sanctification, we could we could translate this as holification to become holy. That's the sense of it. To become set apart for God, by God for God, for his specific purposes. You see, to sanctify means to, to separate out, to make holy, to separate out for a particular use, the intended use. For instance, when I go into my library and I pull a book off the shelf that I want, I'm making it holy in a sense that I'm separating it out from all the other books. And then when I actually read it, then I'm sanctifying this book. This book is being sanctified because now it's being used for the purpose for which it was made, to be read. Um, when we have these microphones, if a singer grabs a microphone and takes it, the microphone now is holy. You take that particular microphone and then you sing or talk into it and that uh, uses it as it's meant to be used. When we're sanctified and being sanctified, it means that yes, we're set apart, but now for the use for which God intended us, and that is to glorify him, to, to, to be holy. Do you see it? Do you get that? That's what this is, is about. Uh, then in this same chapter, uh, uh, Paul goes on to say this, verse 7, he says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. In holiness, you see. And then we turn over to this wonderful benediction in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, make you holy completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body become blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He'll surely do it. The yeah, but is God's gonna do this, right? And the answer is yes, through the means of his word and spirit. But, but don't miss the impact of this. Turn to Titus. In chapter two, if you're quick, Titus chapter two verse eleven. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So, if you ask, why has the grace of God appeared? That is, why did Jesus come? Why has the grace of God appeared to us? Well, so that we could live godly, upright. Uh, uh, lives in the present age right now, waiting for our blessed hope, that is our complete perfection, waiting for our our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Then turn over to Hebrews and chapter 12 and verse 14. The author of Hebrews writes, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace, strive for holiness. But, but isn't our holiness because of Christ and through him? Yes, there's that holiness where he sets us apart to be his, justifies us in his sight. But, but now he says, now live this out. Live a life of holiness. And then Peter puts it like this as he quotes Leviticus in First Peter and chapter one, verse fourteen. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now it doesn't mean that we're saved, that we're given eternal life because we've achieved a level of holiness. That isn't it. But it does mean because God has called us to himself and justified us in his sight through Christ that now he says, go out and live consistent with who you now are. Go out and live now as one who has been given eternal life, one who's been Saved. Uh, James puts it very bluntly like this. He just simply says, faith without works is dead. That is, it, it isn't really faith. If you say believe in Jesus, great, does it affect you? Because it, it's meant to. It's meant to affect your life, so faith without works is dead. He uses Abraham as an example we follow the life of Abraham, we find in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, the passage says that Abraham believed God and God counted it or credited it, counted it as righteousness. But then Abraham was called Genesis chapter 2 to an act of faith. It was a test. Did he really believe? It was a difficult one. You can read it. But He showed his faith by what he did. He wasn't saved by what he did, but he showed that he was, that he really was counted righteous before God. And that's simply John's point here. So if I could see your yabbit for a minute, you're right. John isn't saying that we live a life of sinlessness once we become a Christian, In fact, that was the argument, and the heretics they left, they said, we don't have any sin at all. So John addresses that in the first chapter, and he says, if you say you don't have any sin, you're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. You really do. And so we confess our sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he says, I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin, because he knew that they still would, so that you won't sin. But I'm writing to you this because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the Righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. So there's provision, but his point is, we're not to presume upon that. We're to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And so if I could just say that our verb tenses are really helpful here. Um, The ESV uh, translates a Greek present into that which is a continuous action. And so what John is saying to us is that if you're a believer in Jesus, your life won't be an ongoing life of sin. One translation has it uh, being sinful continuously, that is, without interruptions. And so what interrupts sin in your life? What interrupts sin in your life should be confession and repentance, that that interrupts and and continually interrupts our sin. That our lives are no longer characterized by this life of sin. What John is saying to us is, this isn't a snapshot at a certain time and place where there is no sin, but this is a, a moving picture where we look at someone's life and we say, yes, that person is a follower of Jesus and I know that that person is a follower of Jesus because I see it in their lives because they're living in such a way, desiring to please him and living that out before us. That's the sense of it here. And John bases his, his whole argument as to why this is true on the appearings of Jesus. Ryan, last Sunday, took us wonderfully through First um, John chapter 3. Please, if you missed that sermon, I commend it to you. I re-listened this week because it was such a blessing to me. But he talks about the appearing of Jesus. This 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 when, when he comes, we'll see him as he is. And, and the point is there that we'll be like him. We transformed at that moment to, to, to be like him. That was Ryan made mention. It isn't that we become God, we don't, we're still human, but in our humanness we image Jesus. That is, we glorify him. Uh, that is uh, his character of holiness is now true in us completely. That sin is utterly banished. It's not present at all. And so we have holy minds. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that has no evil thought? No hateful thought, no lustful thought, no angry thought, no malicious thought, no jealousy, no hatred, no pride, no prejudice. You imagine if your mind, that's what your mind will be. Sin won't even be a thought. It, nothing sinful will be uttered out of, out of your mouth. Only blessings will come, no curses. Well, everything we say will build up, not tear down. There won't be a lying word, a gossiping word, a slandering word, a quarreling word, only words of love and and grace and, and peace. Can you imagine yourself like that? Think of it. A holy behavior, everything we do will help, never harm. Protect life, not take it. Uh, there will be acts of compassion and kindness and justice done in love. for The desire of the well-being of the other it will be thoughtless of ourselves and thoughtful of others in everything that we do. Can you imagine that kind of life? Well, 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 that's what it will be when Jesus appears. It'll be like that. Sin will be, Sin will be gone. And then he follows with this expression in verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him. And that's every believer. You see, we became Christians uh, because we realized that sin was the enemy. Not our friend, but the enemy. That was the problem. We needed to be free of it, free of the penalty of it, free of the guilt of it, free of the power of it ultimately the presence of it. That if if sin could be gone, that everything would be great. And so we came to faith in Jesus because he is the one to take away sins. And so our hope is that wonderful vision of Jesus, as Ryan so wonderfully put it, the beatific vision, so that then when we see him, we're like him and, and sin is gone. And so that's our hope. And so John says, if that's your hope, if that's, really the life you desire, then get on with it now. Then everyone who has this hope in Jesus, in him, will purify himself as he is pure. Now clearly, there's, only, there's a purification that only Jesus can do to take away, the, to cleanse us from the guilt and stain of sin. This purifying is, is a living of this out. For instance, in Romans in chapter 6, and verse 19. Middle of verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. That's that's our lives now. Stop giving yourself over to sin. And now give yourself over to righteousness. The slavery to sin is broken. Now go and live, if you will, unto God. Verse 22. But now you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruits you get leads to sanctification, leads to this this holiness, you see. and We have it very nicely laid out for us in Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, now you see, we need to work out what God has worked in. Now, when we're working out what God has worked in, of course, God helps us. We have his spirit within us. We have his word before us. And so he says, now, through the means of his word and spirit, And in context of community life, live this out. This is to characterize you now. If that's your hope, he says you'll get on with it now. Sometimes people come to me and and men and come to me and they say they want to go into vocational ministry and uh, that's their desire. And so my first question is, well, what ministry are you doing now? I mean, if that's really what you want, then you should be doing something now. If a little kid comes to me and says, I want to go and be a major league baseball player, I'll say, well, tell me about your last game. If he isn't playing, I wonder about his hope, really. If you want to get an A in a class, I've had students back in the day when I was teaching at the university, and students would come and say, you know, I need an A in this class. And I would say, then I suppose you'll study. I mean, if that's your hope, then if that's really what you want, so if this is really our hope, if this is really our our desire, that this is really life to live like this, so John says, well, then get on with it. Get on with it now. And the question is, do we have any, is that reasonable for him to even say that? And he says, oh, yes, it is. It's logical. It plays right into your mind if you'll only think about it. And it's based on the fact that Christ has come that Christ has come and so he begins his case and it goes like this in verse four everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness as if if your life is one of sin if that's the bent of your life then that's lawlessness now lawlessness of course is breaking the law of God we we get that or, our Westminster Confession of Faith Catechism uh, says sin is every want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Every want of a conformity. We're not conforming to the law of God. We're transgressing it. And, and so that's true. But when John uses the word lawless here, it's, it, he goes deeper than just what we're doing. He says you're a, you have a lawless heart, that you don't want to follow God. that you're your own law, that you're going your own way. And even when you go the way that the Bible says you should go, it's still sin because you're not going that way in submission to God. You simply say, oh, that's a good idea. I affirm that. I'll do it. But you do it because it's your idea, not because it's in submission to God, you see. Sin is... Often simply plagiarism, taking that which God has said, and we pretend like it was our idea, it was our way, and we don't leave and Him for it. Right? He says, Sin is lawlessness. And then He says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. So He wanted to deal with this lawlessness in us, to take away to take away sins. How did he do that? Well, we know he did that. He did that through his life, by living a life of righteousness, a sinless life. We know then, he also did it by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and breaking the power of it, took away sins. But then also, by sending his spirit, calling forth people to believe in him, to trust him, to receive his grace, and to live in a way that's pleasing, that they would be sanctified, holified, if you will. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. That's his premise. Sin is lawlessness. Jesus came to take away sins, We see a pretty picture of that, don't we, in the Day of Atonement. Remember the Day of Atonement, the Old Testament, Leviticus 16? High priests take two goats. One, he takes and kills and sprinkles the blood in the Holy of Holies to make atonement for sin. The other one, he takes out, he leans against, confesses all the sins of the people on it, and someone takes that, that goat away. That's the work of Jesus. Take away Sins, that's the ultimate desire. We see it when he comes again. It's gone completely. But now he says, I've taken the penalty. I've freed you from its guilt and thus its power. Because see the power of sin. It's the guilt of it. Because we know we're guilty. We stay away from God. But once we see that guilt is gone, that Christ has taken it, then we're free to to enter into the very presence of the Lord, you see, to follow after him. He says, yes, that's that's what I I have for you. So sin is lawless. Jesus came away to take away sin and thus lawlessness because in him there's no sin. And so John simply says, so if that's the case and you abide in him and you live in him, what's up with this sin? There isn't any sin in Jesus. In fact, he came to take it away. So why should then you live this life of sin? Don't don't continue. Don't continue in it. Because you see on the cross, something significant happened. Turn, and I won't do this. This will just take me a minute. It could take me three days. But turn to Romans in chapter 6. Can I just impress upon you, if you would, to follow up this week, read Romans 6, five times. Verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. We're buried, therefore... With him by baptism into death. It is that his baptism signifies this work of Christ. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why did he come? To take away sins, so that we can walk in a new life, you see. Then, verse 6 if we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He broke its power. Then verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how we're now to think of ourselves as dead to sin but alive to Christ to walk in newness of life. Then the big therefore in verse 12, that not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its its, its passions. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. That is, now, you see, you've been freed from its guilt. So you're not under the condemnation of the law. You're freed from it. So now you can live in such a way that is is pleasing. Ah, That is pleasing to him. So then he can say in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 3, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That's how we're. That's how we're to live. Now allow this table to impress this upon you. That Christ has appeared to take away sins. It's penalty. It's power that you might live a life holy unto God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that he appeared to take away sins. He did it in his life. By perfect obedience, he did it in his death by taking the penalty of our sin, our guilt upon him. He rose in newness of life to live and make intercession for us. And we're in him. There's no sin in him. He dealt with the lawlessness. Now he says, live, really live. Don't present your members of your body to sin, but rather present them to God. Walk with him. So me ask you just to bow, please, in the presence of God and just, just take a moment, quietly, hearts opened to him. Perhaps in your own life, there needs to be a bit of an interruption of confession and repentance. Perhaps perhaps just a renewal of saying, yes, during this COVID time, I've been angry and uptight and said things and done things. My attitude. Who would know that I'm a follower of Jesus? Take a moment. Reaffirm in your own hearts. He's come to take away sins. Father, I pray for me, for us to be with us in these days help us really during this advent season to know that christ has come and he's come to take away sins enable us to see it and embrace it to walk in it To help us, I, I pray that you would take this bread and set it apart in such a way. Take this juice and set it apart in such a way that we would know that we're in the very presence of the sinless Jesus. And that we abide in him. And that you would give us grace even in this moment to walk in newness of life. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. It's only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and always. And together we say, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.